I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's.
And welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. It's Friday. It's July 29th, 2016. And you're listening to Mutiny Radio here from the Mission District in beautiful San Francisco. We've got blue skies today. It's pretty pretty nice out as per usual here. Open up the show with a song by Sham69 called If the Kids Are United, which is very similar, of course, to the chant that we hear sometimes at protests. The people united will never be defeated or divided. Either one. There's a lot of different versions out there. But the idea is pretty universal. If people are united, then we will not be defeated. There seems to be the opposite of that, though, uh, for folks who are involved, <laughs> involved, I should say, or are on social media. There's a lot of arguing happening. Uh, I, I don't really have any. It's not even like there's Trump people I have to worry about or Trump supporters I have to worry about. Uh, even among the quote-unquote progressives, folks supporting the Dems, either reluctantly or uh, very you know, insistently, folks who support the Greens, folks who are complete anarchists and think the whole system should be burned down. These are the kind of the points of view that I see on the, on the regular. And there's uh there seems to be a lot of infighting. And if we're all kind of in support of one another, then I I would feel <laughs> I'd feel better about things. But then recognizing that we all have our own perspectives and there seems to be a lot of bullying though, which I don't like. And I've been I've gotten a little bit of that, so part of me is just like stepping away. Like I feel uh pretty strongly about my convictions and also wanting to hear what other people have to say and i tend to want to listen more towards you know to folks who are um more marginalized and who i just i tend to i want to hear more from them as opposed to folks who have i guess less to lose and people who want to challenge the status quo less um for folks who are more or less happy with the way things are or at least less angry about the way things are um i i don't feel as much of a an instinct to really to hear more from them because i feel like the status quo is pushed in our face all the time and if we we question it then we're punished for it or we're questioned and i don't really dig that at all so i really do want to hear from folks who are more upset with the way that the systems that have been in place are in place and ideas for how to change that and also just um, folks letting out their emotions and uh, ideas as to what can be done to to change the systems because I, I do feel like th- as far as elections go things are fixed and as far as politics go one has to have money to be heard and that's wrong <laughs> I can't think of any other words for that but wrong seems to be the first one that comes to mind so if folks aren't like opposed to that or at least questioning that then I feel I need to kind of step away from that dialogue and one can certainly engage and then there's a lot of back and forth and it's hard to detect tone and we all definitely live in our own bubbles uh, with privilege and it's really important I think to hear what other people have to say especially folks who aren't being represented in the major parties and people who don't even believe in the parties. I feel like even more so, we need to hear from them and their voices need to be amplified. So as far as the opening song goes, uh, I feel like the kids are divided pretty much. There is a lot of folks who are willing to make certain compromises that other people are not willing to make. There are people who um, feel that these two options, and again, it's like putting so much pressure and attention into this one election, not that, yeah, obviously like we all wanna stop fascism that's I don't that's like a no-brainer 
The idea as to how we go about doing that, though, I think leaves room for discussion. And some folks are willing to make certain compromises and willing to support people they don't they normally wouldn't support in order to do that. And there are folks who are saying that they're not willing to do that. And I think those positions are valid. And I would like to hear more of a discussion. There seems to be also sometimes in some in some places that I've seen uh, a lack of discussion, more just kind of yelling and a lot of shaming. I was shamed a little bit on my wall because I wrote something that was anti-democratic party. And people assume if I'm anti-democratic party, then I also that for some reason I must be pro-Republican, which I'm not. I despise them. So there is this idea that one can't be like opposed to both. And that feels very frustrating to me. And again, it goes back to the idea with the binary and it can go into talking about gender issues or the way we've been brought up that people have to be in one box or the other. And how about a third option or a fourth option? Or how about get rid of all these boxes altogether? How about that? Could we find a way to live without having these labels and without having to um, subscribe to the us versus them mentality? I would like that. I would really like that. And I think most folks would as well. And unfortunately, there's this idea that it's uh, instead of just an us, it's a us versus them. And uh, it's I think that's very tricky. Like unless you're I, I believe in the us versus them argument, if it's like us against fascists. You know, absolutely. Um, but this idea of us versus them within the progressive movement, I think, fractures us further. Or folks who even want to call, I don't even know if they even call themselves progressives. And I have a lot of difficulty um, swallowing whatever uh, ideas that would end up having me support folks who are pro war and pro fracking and pro building prisons. I, all those things I deeply despise. I really, really do. I really, really do. And my question for folks out there who are uh, hardcore uh, Clinton supporters is, are folks willing to, if she's elected, and I have a good feeling about it because, let's see, you know, fraudulent elections and everything. If she is, um, will folks really hold her accountable if she decides to go forward with a lot of the... Pro-military, you know, this definitely this wealthy one percent kind of upholding the status quo that has been happening, and I recognize a lot of the criticism towards her has been misogynist, and that's fucked up. And believe me, the only thing I would like more than not having any leaders at all would be to have a, a female leader. Absolutely, absolutely. I, if you know me, you know I'm not a fan of. I would say I don't want to generalize because there's a lot of men out there, but I think men need to step back. Absolutely. Um, but I think just because someone's female doesn't necessarily mean that I have to love them and support them as a politician. And I also recognize that there's a lot of women out there who are very happy to have a female repre representative up there. I totally get that, and I appreciate that. So in no way am I uh, are my criticisms towards Clinton based on the fact that she's a woman. If anything, I would love to have a female president if we have to have a president. Absolutely. I just feel like I need to agree with, with their positions, and that's that's it. So I do recognize the importance of that, and I don't want to dismiss that. I do feel like it would be great to have someone who represents my values, although I guess someone who super represents my values wouldn't necessarily make it that far in the election, uh, just because I'm, I guess, more for a real change of the way things have been operated in this country for a very long time. 
And perhaps the way to do that is to work out of the system. And I recognize that there are a lot of folks working within the system to change it, and I appreciate them as well. So this is not meant to be a criticism or... I, I have a criticism, though, for, for warmongers, and that doesn't have to be directed at anyone in particular. For folks, though, who are war profiteers who want to sell weapons, or that's like their main focus, uh, people who want to lock people up, uh, I can't get with that. <laughs> I just cannot. And I think being pressured... It feels really frustrating when folks uh, f feel the need to kind of overlook that. Like, there's a lot of <laughs> misbehavior and a lot of evils. And I recognize, like, when people say, oh, well, do you want so-and-so to win? Do you want Trump to win? Like, of course not. Of course I don't. And I I wish the conversation could, could revolve around more what, what do we want and who are we willing to support as opposed to choosing someone that a lot of us don't don't support. And I, there's definitely like a lot of bullying too. Like I, I certainly hope I don't come across that way. Um, but there has been a lot of just like, yeah, I was kind of called out on certain people assume certain things about me based on my positions. And um, I'm really much for just the end of the military everywhere in the world. And uh, or the end of, I should say, militarization. And I feel like the end of like law enforcement and the idea behind it. It's not so much the people who are involved in it, although some people I do feel act reprehensibly, but the idea that these systems are in place, that this idea is to punish people, you know, with weapons or locking people up in jail or through like colonization and invading places. I don't, I don't dig that at all. And I feel, I don't think that necessarily comes from, I feel like that's not a privileged argument to make. I feel that's a very realistic argument to make that I wouldn't want to live in a country that other folks felt the need to invade, nor do I want to, nor would I feel proud, do I feel proud to live in a country that has also used X amount of money to fund military operations abroad while there are people here who are starving. Like, I don't, it just does not sit well with me. And the idea of people um, either overlooking it or defending it, I feel, it feels very dismissive and at the end of the day, if we want to live peacefully, going abroad and attacking folks is not the way to do it. If anything, the, the opposite happens when we go to other places. And we, I say that, uh, being from this country, um, it and not going there with the intent. I'm sure some folks do go there with the intent to help people. And there's also folks who go there without the intent of helping people. and end up causing harm. And a lot of the times the people making these rules or the people deciding where we should or should not go are kind of there for profit. Uh, if the intent, the intent there is, is for profit or to set up military bases and not to help people. And I feel it's really important to recognize that. And we should, uh, maybe fix the, some of the problems here in the, in the States. And a lot of those things I talk about here, which is uh, defunding, uh, police departments in Oakland, 62% of the budget goes to the police department itself, which we all know is extremely corrupt, and that's messed up. And if that funding were to go to help communities directly, it's like, why is that not happening? I guess we can kind of know why, like greed and control. I think that would be a, a good thing. And again, these are just ideas that a lot of folks have, you know, been been talking about for a long time. And... I think questioning the status quo and questioning the way things are and talking about alternatives is a really uh, important thing to do. Uh, plus the idea that is that, yeah, we can talk about what's not working 
and we need to have something else in place to to turn to. I mean, it's I like the idea of burning it down, and then we also need to have something to establish because once it's burned down, then anything else can come up, and we need to make sure that whatever comes up as our systems, if they are systems that actually help people and protect people and everybody, like every single person, that every single person uh, feels like they're able to walk down the street safely. And the fact that, that we have, even have to talk about that and the people that have uh, access to reproductive health care, for instance, that too. The fact that we even are still talking about that, I think, is just ridiculous. And the fact that people have to argue for that and that there are, there are candidates like Mike Pence, who's a fucking, I mean, on this show, I've had a couple of themes that is in the main, one of the main things is getting angry at people in positions of power who abuse their authority and kind of calling them out on it and naming them. And there's a lot of governors out there, Scott Walker, who I despise, who's in my dream last night. But for some reason, I think we we're kind of getting like revenge on him or there is some kind of like protection against him. There's a lot of folks who create more harm by being in positions of power and they need to be stopped. And that goes beyond everyone having their own biases because we all have, I have my own biases. We all have our own biases based on our experiences and what we've been learned and what we've, what we've learned and how we've been brainwashed in a variety of ways. And I think when you're that reprehensible, like Mike Pence is with his anti-abortion and anti-LGBT stances, uh, he, I mean, I consider myself a pacifist. And then I also recognize that, uh, in some situations, that's not necessarily the best option. And when someone's actively causing harm to someone, they need to be stopped. They really do. So I don't own any any weaponry. I don't. And that's not exactly my mode of communication. Um, I do feel, though, that folks in positions of power who are causing this harm, and like not even, it's not even secretively, and if they were, that's a whole other story, too, but they need to be stopped. And what can we do to stop them? And I think Mike Pence is extremely dangerous and already has been dangerous. And everyone I know in Indiana agrees. And that's kind of frustrating. The same thing kind of has happened here when there are folks who in politics and the people from their, their state are only excited that they get a promotion or get an opportunity because that means that they leave their state. There was some talk that some folks wanted to support Scott Wiener for state senator if that meant that he would leave San Francisco. And there are folks in Indiana who have been uh, happy that Mike Pence has, you know, nominated for VP because that would mean that he would get out of Indiana. And like, what does that say about our culture? So with all this, uh, I'm playing a lot of punk songs today because there's a lot of anger out there. And I feel like punk is one of those genres of music that really exemplifies that and it's fast and it's loud and it's short and it's just to the point and it says things a lot more uh, eloquently than I think uh, I feel like I can a lot of the time we have a guest calling in very excited about that Molly Neffel whom I met in New York many years ago and Molly will be talking to us about uh, experiences outside the RNC and the DNC uh, the media of course only represents tells a certain story and we've had we've had thankfully with with social media one positive thing is that there are citizen journalists and there are folks who are able to capture video and footage of what's happening that might not be reported by mainstream media and i think that's extremely important so that's part of the reason i enjoy having this program is being able to hear from the voices that you're not going to hear from the mainstream media and the mainstream news outlets. We don't have any sponsors. I don't have any sponsors. Have I? I could probably be a little bit more forward with asking for sponsorship. If you want to sponsor the show, that's great. I do have to support your business, and you. I mean, like, there are certain. I, I have a reluctance. To, to sell it. I haven't even gotten like the idea of like selling out. Like, what is it selling out? What are you willing to do for money? Et cetera, et cetera. And I was in a privileged place that I, there are certain things I'm not willing to do. 
Um, for instance, uh, as, a, as an actor, there's a, they're casting for a, a Comcast commercial. And I think it's probably pretty good money. I don't know exactly what it would entail or if I'd even be cast in it. But part of me is I'm so opposed to Comcast in general, I won't even audition for it. And I, I wonder if uh, the uh, rest of folks in the world were to, you know, like it's, it's frustrating when the places that can provide work for us are also, I think, a little bit evil. And I'm thinking about weapons manufacturers. I would not to pursue a career in that because I'm completely opposed to that. And again, it's a catch-22, and again, I'm in a very privileged position where that's not something I'm, I'm forced to do or it's not like a, a viable option for me, and I recognize that's not true for everyone. So ideally, we'd like to create a world where the folks who are creating the harm are not the ones in power. I would love to be able to like you know hire people to just be artists and, and do fun things and not support any reprehensible uh, ideals. My point is that I don't have any sponsors on this show. If you have a small business, if you do something good, if you work for a nonprofit, again, you probably don't have a lot of funding. But if you do happen to have some extra capital and you would like me to promote your business or your activity or you, whatever it is, a show, I kind of do it for free anyway. So I don't know how that would work necessarily. But if you'd like to support the show, I, that would be great. Um, one great thing is about not having sponsors is that I can pretty much, here at Mutiny Radio, we can pretty much say whatever we want and there's no censorship, which is really... I appreciate very much, and I recognize that not everyone has that, so that's why I like to provide my unfiltered opinion, and um, hopefully other folks who, whether or not you agree with me, you disagree, perhaps there's some things you are on board with, other things not, that's what's really important, and when it's problematic is when we only have certain points of view that are expressed, and the idea that other voices are not heard at all I feel is extremely damaging for our culture and for the world as a whole. So I really want to make sure that everyone has a chance to speak and want to provide those folks opportunity to do that. So keep on listening to Mutiny Radio. We'll be talking to Molly Neffel around 12.30 p.m. Pacific time. That's in about 10 minutes. I am going to have some news stories at the end of the show. News stories about some depressing things. Are there something positive that's happened in the world? Mm, yeah, sure. Will I find news stories about those? Mm, maybe. This week was a little bit of a rough week, as it always is. Um, I think this election is kind of bringing a lot of issues to the surface. I am not terribly upset. Well, I guess I'm a little bit. I mean, my birthday happens to be on November 8th, which is the day of the election. And so I'm going to plan to do a lot of things ahead of time. And if anything, I feel like this kind of gives credence as to why Scorpios are given the reputation for being so intense and at times maybe um, angry or bitter. Maybe that's just me personally. But as far as the the Zodiac sign goes, whether or not you believe in it or not, which I recognize there's a lot of folks who don't believe in it. And for folks who do, Scorpios have a tendency, folks born in November have a tendency to be perceived as very serious and troubled and intense, also sexual and mysterious. Anyway... I'm thinking that uh, being born around the time that election election day falls does not help the case at all because people just happen to be around that time more upset here in the States anyway, more upset, more serious, more angry, more fearful, and that perhaps adds to the climate. Like I was, I keep on giving away my age, which is fine. I'm not ashamed of it, but it's like, I, I don't know. I feel like whoever's going to spy on me, they already know everything that there is to know. The idea, though, is that I was born during an election year, and I'm wondering how much that kind of put into the 
uh, energy that was around, and the results were not good. <laughs> uh, the results were not good as for the year that I was born and the election, and I can't help but think that that uh, has added to um, maybe some discomfort and the dis- distraughtness. I don't know. Growing up in the 1980s, it was uh, <sighs> there's a lot to kind of fight against. So I'll be playing some more music, and then we'll be talking to Molly Neffel around 12.30, so please stay tuned. Also, if you would like to talk, if you have anything you'd like to share, please do give us a call. We are available at 415-550-0511. You can buy and see us in person. We're on the corner of 21st and Florida here in the Mission. Say hi. You can also follow us on Evil Facebook. It's not evil. Well, it's just used for malicious purposes sometimes, but that hasn't stopped me from using it, so what does that say? We're at facebook.com slash weeklyrev. We post news articles, and you can also comment. If you'd like to share anything, please send us a message, and we'd like to hear from you. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in a little bit. I'm playing a song by the band The Four Skins called One Law For Them. One love for them. 
welcome back to the weekly review. I'm on the phone with Molly Neffel. Molly, thank you for calling in. Yeah. So um, please uh, share with us your experience. Well, as, as I was calling in, I was wondering where to even start. It's been such a weird and crazy two weeks, but uh, the RNC was terrifying, and uh, the DNC was, you know, it was, it was a lot better than the RNC, um, but the, the kind of biggest takeaway that I have, like, you know, just, just generally from having just attended both conventions is uh, I, I, I wish that there had been a lot more protests against Trump. Yes. And I was heartened by the amount of protests that there were um, in Philadelphia at the Democratic Convention. So I, I, I am simultaneously feeling really optimistic about the state of kind of a, a resistance in the United States and also wishing it was a lot bigger. I hear that. Yeah, I've, all I've been able to see is just from what I've people have been sharing online, which there's some video footage of folks from the protests at the DNC and the, and the RNC as well, but I feel as far as what... I don't have a TV, but um, I'm just curious as to how much, if anything, that mainstream media has covered in terms of protests against both both groups. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I, I usually have a TV and I'm like um, kind of shamefully a little bit of a TV junkie, but... Uh, all week and the week before I haven't really well the week before I spent the last time in some um, kind of trashy Cleveland sports bars watching uh, media coverage so I got a pretty good sense of how the convention was being covered um, uh, in Cleveland and so in Philly I didn't see that much but the main takeaway that I got from everything that I was seeing in Philly was that there was just a lot of disparagement of the Sanders delegates, and um, I think that they were. Uh, I think that I think that there were there were a lot of disappointed Sanders delegates there. There's like no question about that, and I think that a lot of them were being, um, you know, there were people out in the streets protesting. There were delegates that were inside who were being disruptive there. Um, but to me, I don't know. I, I, to me, this is the first time in my lifetime where we've seen like. Uh, a, a rowdy, like it wasn't even a contested convention, but just to have a convention where there was different thoughts and ideas and even different candidates being kind of fought for, yeah. maybe that was like this incredibly exciting thing, right? Yes, yes. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, there were a lot of protests. Um, there were a lot of uh, Bernie, kind of Bernie-oriented protests um, in Philly, both inside and outside, whereas in Cleveland, there were protesters there, but it was so much smaller than I would have hoped, mm. considering that, you know, the party is nominating a fascist. Yes. And uh, it seemed like in Cleveland, it, things were actually much, much rowdier uh, on the inside than they were on the outside. Interesting. Yeah, because, you know, uh, in Cleveland, at least, you know, the Republicans, I don't know, they kind of had to, like, well, both, it was this interesting thing, right, where both parties were trying to, spend the convention trying to, like, um, convince people that they're a unified party. Yeah. And of course, neither party is a unified party right now. Yes. And so to me, it was very interesting seeing that whole thing um, kind of play out on the floors of like in both cities um, week after week. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. How there, I'm sure there are plenty of Democrats, oh, I know for sure, Democrats who are unhappy with Clinton and then also plenty of Republicans who are unhappy with Trump. And it's interesting how 
we kind of play into this us versus them mentality when there's similarities between the two groups at the moment. Yeah, right. And and I think everyone was really worried that um, that that Bernie Sanders would like quote unquote pull a Ted Cruz and like not endorse um, Hillary. And I think that I, I he already had endorsed her, and I think that I was expecting him to. And I think that it's a good thing that he did. Um, but at the same time, I also you know, and I think that it's I understand. Um, I understand that people saying, you know, we all need to, regardless of whether you are a Bernie supporter, we all need to rally around Clinton because the goal is to beat Trump. Like I definitely get that, but I also, I just always think that there's a huge amount of value in kind of like pushing the Democratic Party from the left. And I yes. Think that the Bernie supporters. I think that throughout this entire campaign, that campaign, the Bernie campaign, and um, the people doing the work around it, I think they're doing really important work. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So, yeah, I'm trying to kind of process and synthesize everything that I saw uh, and kind of come up with some of my big takeaways. Um, and, and, you know, for me, the main, yeah, like I said, the main question is just, like, what does, what does, what does a left resistance look like um, right now, like kind of post-Sanders campaign, what's the, what are the next steps for the, for the left and for progressives and for Democrats? Um, and especially what does that look like? Yeah, like what does that look like between now and November? And then what does it look like after November? Yes. Um, although, to be honest, I have been, I haven't even thought about, it's my brain like put like a wall when I try to have to, when I have to like think about what, what uh, you know, that there's actually going to be this election in November. I really... I get freaked out when I think about it. Yeah, same here. And I, I really hope that, because it's interesting how folks get so invested in the this election in particular, and then I feel like after someone's elected, a lot of people end up remaining or just becoming quiet and uninvolved with politics in whatever front. And I feel it's very frustrating that there's so much time and attention and energy spent just to get someone else elected. And then once they're in office, there's very little energy overall um, used to like hold them accountable or to kind of fight for what folks really believe in. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I, I think slash hope slash am cautiously optimistic that the Bernie campaign is going to at least has the possibility to, to change that. Right. Because, um, you know, because I think that, right. That like, just like you said, around elections, everyone gets so mobilized around like one person and then, like there was an amazing mobilization around Barack Obama, which was like you know historic and totally like critically necessary. Um, but it was hard to tell whether those coalitions that formed in 2008 to go door knocking and stuff like it, it didn't seem like that necessarily remained like a, a gigantic organized um, uh, coalition necessarily after the election. Whereas um, I think that the hope is that. Uh, uh, even though uh, uh, Bernie didn't end up being the candidate, um, that you know, the, I, the hope I, I think is that um, some of the people who have been kind of awakened to mobilize or or, or invested in that that campaign, um, who've set up kind of organizing networks, that that moving forward, that even though the election will be over, and like you said, people tend to just say like, okay, whatever, that that's done. Um, I, I hope that, that that we'll have a kind of like new level of 
um, of people who were invested and organized and have political experience working on the campaigns. And that I think that that might be really powerful. Yeah. I feel that from what I've heard just from his speeches is that he was really encouraging folks to to take it into their own hands and to for him to really say that he's just one person and it's really up to everyone to take part as much as they are able to. Yeah, and and one of the stories that I wrote while I was in um when I, while I was in Philly was um, I, I attended a meeting of a bunch of uh, it was a couple of different organizations, one of which it's called local progress and it's all uh about the idea that like local elected officials have um can have like much more of an impact on people's lives even than the president can right yes. so um so it's like uh it's all about like pushing um pushing for progressive legislation in cities and like localities and like there's all these really interesting examples of that like in new york they have like the municipal id program so that undocumented people can have IDs and like pointing to some of the really harmful um, bills that are being pushed around the country right now, like like these bathroom bills. Like a lot of those are local, so if you have local politicians pushing back on them, then it can be really powerful. And that was something that I had had um, that I always think is really important, and especially during a presidential campaign, because people think so much about the president, but they don't necessarily put the same amount of energy into like thinking about who their elected officials are. Absolutely. I feel like there's maybe like a safety in that too, where this idea of like, oh, if I vote for this one person who's really far away from me, um, no matter what happens, it can't really touch me in a way. Or maybe there's like lack of accountability. While if someone pays attention to what's happening locally, uh, it's it can feel scarier in a way because then we feel actually more connected and maybe more powerful, which I think is a little bit scary for, for folks since we're taught that we are powerless and our voices don't really matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that that's totally true. And it also, you know, I think for, for people with privilege, like, um, I think that for people with privilege, it's kind of easy for them to, to look at even the, at the, the presidential campaign and say, well, you know what, 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 my, what, in what way will my life really change one way or the other? And that's like, you know, that's like for white, straight, cisgendered, you know, uh, uh, like citizens, right? Like who can, who can, uh, and, and, and also people who don't have to worry about reproductive rights. Like yes. I think that for them, it's kind of like, well, you know, my life will probably be fine either way. Yeah, Trump's scary and yeah, I hate him. And like, yeah, Hillary is imperfect, but, but you know, whatever, um, my day-to-day life won't change. Whereas I think that um, for more marginalized people, um, they have the, the, the immediacy of what's at stake, I think, is, um, is a lot more powerful. Um, but yeah, it can also be really, really scary. Yes, absolutely. So I was curious if, like, um, you saw any arrests at either the RNC or the DNC. It's a good question. I was going in prepared for, like, like gigantic, terrifying levels of police violence um, because both cities were, like, totally, like, jacked and ready. Um, and we saw so many cops in both cities. Ugh. But uh, I did not see... Um, there, was, there was one... Um, protests that led to about 15 arrests in the RNC. I was a few blocks away when that happened, but I didn't see that one directly. And similarly in Philly, I had been at a couple of marches where there were um, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, 
great, great presence, a lot of people in the streets, and also a huge police presence. But I didn't see any arrests, although I believe um, on, I think it was Thursday night, um, maybe it was both Wednesday and Thursday, um, there were a couple of direct actions that led to um, an arrest. But mm. I will say that um, the, the police presence was just gigantic. And in, in Cleveland at the RNC, there was like, I think we counted at least six or seven states where cops had been had come in. We were like saying it's like summer camp for cops. Like you see all their different like uniforms. Um, wow. And uh, so that was really intense because thankfully, even though I, I, it wasn't, they weren't um, engaging in like super escalatory violent behavior. It's just the presence of like you know, hundreds and hundreds of police at a peaceful protest is like an escalatory thing in and of itself, you know? Yes, absolutely. I can only just imagine like what a grant, I mean, I've seen them kind of gather for like smaller protests, so I can only imagine on a, on a, on a wider scale what that's like. And it really just, yeah. it just shows how like the, the people in positions of power really have them at their, at their will to, to do whatever they want to yeah, protect them. exactly, exactly. And it's just, you know, if you're somebody who um, has ever had a negative experience with police or has any reason not to feel safe around them, which again is like, you know, linked up so much to, to privilege. And like, as a white person, I never, um, I never even thought about the police until I showed up at Occupy Wall Street. And then like, for the first time I was like, oh, uh, this is terrifying, but I just never had to think about the police. But then since then, and having seen a lot of, um, really violent arrests at protests there um you know when i'm around a lot of police i get really freaked out yeah i think a lot of folks do yeah most most folks i know are do not feel i mean it's like the exact opposite this idea of serving and protecting and then in, in fact it's like i don't know when i'm around them i feel more afraid and less protected yeah of course of course like because yeah i mean uh, yeah it's it, it just and so that's why I say, like, yeah, having having that that gigantic presence of them, it's like, you know, like I said, it is good that they weren't that they didn't just totally come out swinging like they could have, like, you know, setting a low bar to be like, oh, they did a great job, right, um, by, right, by not by not beating people. Um, but there were there were just tons of them, and it was totally an intimidating thing. And I also think it was like a, a, a chilling effect too, because um, you know, I'm trying to figure out why there's so few people who went to Cleveland to protest. Mm -hmm. But then I'm thinking, oh, I didn't want to go to Cleveland. Like, I thought it was going to be terrifying. And yes. so I think that a lot of people were afraid of what the police might do. Yes, absolutely. And I was thinking also just in terms of, you know, some folks have been throwing around like 1968 and how 2016 feels similar in a lot of ways. And just thinking about the, the convention from 1968. The Democratic Convention in Chicago, and so I was just curious, like, if there were any, were going to be any parallels to that, and if we were going to hear about that. Yeah, I think to me the biggest parallel, um, since you know, thankfully there wasn't um, police riots at either, but I think I was thinking about 1968 a lot too, um, and also thinking about um, uh, uh, Hunter Thompson's book *Here and Living on the Campaign Trail*. Um, and to me, yeah, to me, the, 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 the biggest parallels are just that, um, you know, that we are just going through this, like, incredible p political change that is so unlike anything that I've ever seen. And I think that there's so much despair and there's so much, like, um, there's, like, a profound, like, lack of faith in American institutions. The parties, I think both parties are really, especially the Republican Party, 
is like is is really fragile. Uh, the Democratic Party isn't necessarily fragile, but it's divided. I mean, there's no question. There's huge divisions between um, the progressive, uh, you know, left wing, um, and the more centrist, uh, more establishment wing. And so, I, you know, I just like never. I, I don't think in our lifetimes we've seen anything um, that th this like any like a level of change so powerful and so in that way i was thinking a lot about 68 so i was just like we are living in a com completely unstable time and a really important time and it's like the kind of like like 68 i feel like i mean maybe it's different with 68 but i feel like right now it's like the feeling of like we don't know what's about to happen yes um, yes nobody really knows what the future could look like and yeah. that's really really intense yeah, and I mean, it, there's that fear and then also the excitement too, because I feel like for everything that um, what one could ha one could say might happen, which is terrifying, there's also on the flip side, well, what if people really do band together? And I think both can be, like, change regardless of how it, it goes is, is scary for a lot of people who would rather be, you know, even if things are uncomfortable and not okay, like the status quo is still somewhat more, in a way overall, I guess, comfortable maybe just because it's people are kind of used to it as opposed to trying something completely new which could go either way yeah absolutely i think the same thing i was just talking i, I like just got off of the bus with my friend who i spent both weeks with and and he you know he was saying he was like i think we're in a really good spot and it was the first time i'd ever heard a kind of optimistic thought especially after these two weeks um but even more generally like about this entire campaign so much of it has been so full of like despair and alienation and hatred um, yes but um but he was like i think we're in a really good spot because he was like the left is getting more and more organized it's growing it's ascending it's ascending on an electoral level like i heard keith ellison speak i think he's a really um really moving interesting guy and he said the same thing he said people need to know that the left is on the rise it's ascending it's getting more powerful and um so well, the possibilities of, I think the far right is also ascending, right? And that's yeah. extremely scary, but it is, I think, I think I have some level of, of optimism um, that, that there is a kind of emerging organized left that's like certainly stronger than it's, than it's stronger than it's been, um, I think, uh, not necessarily in recent years past, but yeah, I think the last five years have changed a lot for the left. And I think that we are, um, uh, we are looking now at a, uh, um, more more possibilities for real meaningful progressive change um, than than we saw um, you know uh, before five years but you know before kind of the 2010 2011 period yeah yeah well, let's hope that can kind of continue to grow and that folks I think there's also like that idea of burnout as well I know from like a lot of activists where folks kind of throw themselves into it and then they need time to to recover and recuperate. So hopefully with enough folks, I mean, that's a great thing about having so many people involved is that one can kind of sit out or, or take care of themselves while other folks are out there fighting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like that also that it's like, I think people can get discouraged really easily. Yeah. Like, you know, I think like after Occupy, everyone was like, oh, well, that didn't work. So now what? And it's like, oh, your, your, your movement didn't overthrow capitalism in one year. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's take longer. <laughs> You know, so yeah. I think that uh, I think that um, uh, you know when you look back at, at, at other movements like the, like the civil rights movement taking place over the course of 10, 12, 
15 years, you know, so I think that we, when we link together all of the, the, the movements that we've seen, um, you know, in the past five years, each one, like, really important and distinct in its own right, right? Like, like Black Lives Matter is completely, um, is addressing, obviously, completely different issues than Occupy Wall Street was than Fight for 15, but, all, but even those three things alone, I mean, that's like a, all three of those things have been so powerful. Yes. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think like, you know, like you said about burnout, people can get, people can get exhausted um, and discouraged and kind of like lose steam and lose energy. But I think that with, with coalition building, then if people need to do that, there will be other people that kind of keep it going. Absolutely. Know? And that's something too, with even like with the three, um, if the three groups and ideas that you mentioned still like finding the commonalities between where we're all kind of fighting a lot of us are fighting against like the same where it really is like the you know the one the one percent and what they represent or like the systems that are in place whether that be law enforcement which has uh, you know or just like the folks at the top for lack of a better uh more i guess elaborate description but it really is if we all are to unite and realize how the folks at the top are kind of screwing all of us over um, the more the more solidarity we have, the easier it will be for us to kind of to to fight back and take what's ours. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that yeah. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I, th- I, I completely agree. And I think that that even just saying that the people at the top, I think that uh, right, like that the 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 targets are there are a lot of different targets. But what we're talking about ultimately is like people who have been without power for so long. Yes. Um, uh, figuring out ways to like pose some really really important challenges to people um who have been in power mm-hmm. or as a small group of interconnected people who have been in power yes. forever and so i think that yeah I, I totally agree i think that um i think we're seeing so much um i, I think it's just been such an such an important and meaningful time um for marginalized um groups in the past few years and and seeing um Seeing how much resistance is happening and growing, and I, I, I am that that gives me a lot of optimism. Yes, same here, and it's good to hear too, because I feel like there is so much to feel like frustrated about, and it's really important to remember like the the positive steps that have been made and the the changes that have been made. Yeah, absolutely, because otherwise it can just feel you get just so overwhelmed and scared, and especially if you're experiencing kind of. Um, oppression or marginalization on a day-to-day level uh, it can take so much out of you um, and so I think that um, at least I hope that for um, that, that it's not you know that, that for people who are who are feeling that way that seeing um, you know it's, it's one hand one thing and it's good that like in the DNC they like shouted out a lot of important things and you know there was re- representation of different some of those different fights like on the stage but you know I think um, that the movement that's happening in the streets is is much more important for people's yes. actual lives and Absolutely. I think really inspiring. I hear that too and then also just the fact that again it like it can it reminds folks that we we all have voices and that we all can make the change and we don't necessarily need to rely on the systems that are in place to make the change for us or even say they're going to make the change for us. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that like um, having people is, at the top kind of give voice to what you're struggling for is like that's a positive change if they were before not giving any voice to it. But what really matters is the people speaking for themselves. You know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Ah. And also one of the quotes that keeps on popping up in my mind is the Audre Lorde quote. Well, a lot of Audre Lorde quotes are always like circling in my mind. But one is <laughs> that uh, a revolution is not a one-time event. 
which came up yeah. when you were discussing Occupy, and I think about that a lot with just this, you know, there's, it's a, it's a constant, there's an ongoing, uh, it's just, it's just ongoing, and there'll, there'll be many, it's just, yeah, it's, it's ongoing, and there's many occasions when it keeps on coming up, and it's not just a one-time thing. Right, and it's not, it's, right, it's not like a singular moment that we're working for and that we will achieve, right? Yes. It's, it's going to be this, like, kind of um, relentless, uh, relentless work. Um, and, and and progress like progress as as you know as we go. Um, but yeah, it's it's it almost feels strange for me right now to be talking about how optimistic I am because the last two weeks were just so weird. But it's also really nice, and I mean it. It's like I I, I really as much as um, as much as a lot of about the last two weeks were discouraging and terrifying at times. Um, you know the, the the possibilities, like I said, um, the possibilities for the left, I think, are really um, for the left and for just for for progressivism and and you know resistance to power more broadly. I think um, I think we're at, at just an absolutely like critical time right now. Awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much for for speaking. Is there anything else you would like to share? Any any stories you remember from your experience, or anything that's not directly related to the conventions that you wanted to talk about? Um, well, the main thing. Uh, the, the the main thing that I was really excited about from this week, um, kind of only tangentially related to the uh, conventions, was um, I got to learn a lot about the Philadelphia. I have to learn about about Philadelphia, and it's such a cool city. I had never really been there before, um, and I learned a lot about the public school advocates uh, organizing there. That's a city that's been totally like decimated by education reform. There's they've mm. seen all these really devastating school closures and. So the organizing that's happening on the ground in Philadelphia is like rad and so like like ambitious and powerful and like they are like everyone I spoke to was like neoliberalism has failed in Philadelphia yeah. and we are here to show it and we are here to like fight for a different world and it was so inspiring. Yeah. That, that does, and I feel like that also just inspires more folks to to get out and to to take on what issues that they are facing. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, I, you know, I'm not an organizer; I'm just a writer. But after I spoke to people, I was like, yes, this is so exciting. Very cool. So, um, yeah, so we spoke with John a, a few weeks ago, and so if you wanted to like plug your your podcast um, yes. and or anything you've written. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the three stories that I wrote from the convention, um, two are at Truth Out, um, and one is at In These Times. And uh, we've been, for the last two weeks, um, me and my brother have been speaking about the convention, reporting from the convention in, in kind of various ways um, on our podcast, Radio Dispatch, which is, the website is uh, radiodispatch.com and we're on Twitter at radio underscore dispatch, and it's a daily, uh, uh, five days a week, free podcast where we talk about politics, but also he and I both come from comedy, so we get really silly too. Yeah, that's so important. I, I, f- I find that too, like in the in the comedy world, how important it is to, if you have stage time, uh, to actually get up and say something that's truthful and important. And also on the flip side, in the activist world, in the, po- the political world, how important it is to also have a sense of humor about things because it can get really upsetting just to recognize the kind of world that we live in. So I, f- I feel like both sides really help each other a lot. That is so true. And like, it is so, I think, uh, 
too rare to have those two things cross over, right? I feel yeah. Like a, lot of, a lot of comedians are just like, ah, oh, politics isn't my thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of activists I meet are just hilarious and, and wonderful and just like awesome to be around. But also, like you said, it can be really discouraging. And so I think keeping keeping humor, if, if, if humor is your survival mechanism, then it's so important, you know? Yes, absolutely. That's well, the only thing that keeps me like willing and interested in talking about the news every day is joking around about it. Yeah, totally. And that's like the I think the one thing that makes me I've taken a bit of a break from comedy, but when I do go back up on stage, the the main thing is because there are things that I feel need to be discussed that people aren't necessarily talking about. So I feel like that's what kind of encourages me to remind myself to get on stage when I'm able to and have the opportunity to is just to to be able to bring some I guess truth to it and just uh, to remind folks that we do have a platform in the comedy world to to speak about what's happening and I feel there's also a responsibility in that as well yeah that's so true I think that that's such important work to do in the comedy world and in any sort of any 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 um, any for any people who have platforms to use it responsibly like that you know yeah cool well thank you so much for for, for calling in it was really good to talk to you yeah, it was great to talk with you, too. It's been way too long, so thank you so much for having me. Indeed. Well, sending much love to all the folks out there on the East Coast and all the folks doing the really good work out there. All right, and lots of love uh, right back to you all. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again to Molly Neffel for calling in. Uh, uh, it's. I mean, this is just what it's about. It's really about collaboration, and it's about hearing from folks. If you know, we all can't be in the same place at the same time, so it's really important to to reach out and to share information. So, thank you again to Molly for calling in. We'll be taking a bit of a musical break, and then we'll be back with some more news. <laughs>
and welcome back to the weekly review. That was the Verrukers with No Masters, No Slaves. And before that, we heard Against Me. Uh, and before that, a song called Jesus Was a Communist. That was a band by Reagan Youth, who I was reading about recently. I hadn't heard too much about them, and I really enjoy a lot of their music. And they were pretty much, they got their name kind of calling into attention in the 1980s, how a lot of young folks kind of took under under Reagan as folks took under Hitler. So there was making a... a uh, a comparison to the way some of the folks who grew up in the 1980s would kind of mindlessly follow their leader as folks did in Germany in the 30s and 40s. So I think that's very apt and that's something that's not discussed very much here in the States is uh, the similarities. You know, we talk about being free and having liberty and all this and there's a lot of people in positions of power and the systems that are in place that end up having a lot of the same behaviors that are very exclusive and very harmful to people who don't necessarily fall in line. So I appreciate folks who kind of call attention to that. Great talking to Molly Neffel. And in regards to similarity, similarity? Uh, something similar that's been happening, I think it's really important to call into attention the um, importance of protests from folks around the world. And so this first story that we're going to go over today comes from The Guardian. And this is out of Rio. And this was written by uh, Jonathan Watts. And this came out on Thursday, July 28th. Uh, Olympic flame extinguished by Rio protesters. We've heard a lot of how when they're trying to have the, and they're still trying to uh, have the Olympics there, a lot of folks in Rio have said this is not good for our city. People have been displaced. Uh, the Olympics are not, they don't usually help the cities in which they happen. Same, similar like the Super Bowls and a lot of other wide sporting events. It seems to, reminds me of wars a little bit, like kind of folks coming in with money saying, we're going to do this in your city. And the folks who are local saying, no, thank you. And it happening anyway. And then the folks who are local end up experiencing a lot of the harmful side effects, not even side effects, but just effects of that. So that's kind of what's happened in Rio. And they've also said it's not safe. Uh, like the water's not safe. There's a lot of things that are problematic about having the Olympics in Rio. And I think would be problematic about having the Olympics in most places, which is what happens when people with money kind of move in and decide to do their thing under the guise of helping people and celebrating something. And the folks who are the most marginalized are the ones who suffer for it. So Olympic flame extinguished by Rio protesters. Uh, teachers forced temporary halt and runner bust away. Stretch of torch relay route in Rio was missed out. And they have some video footage here that uh, I will play so we can get some audio on this, and then I will go into the article itself. And we see that there is there's footage here of a protest. There's a lot of people in the streets. And you can hear folks chanting. out the article in the guardian which we posted on our facebook page you can see the video there as well so the olympic torch relay was disrupted by striking teachers teachers the heroes as per usual after it entered rio de janeiro ahead of next week's opening ceremony video footage of the demonstration suggests the flame was extinguished while the runner carrying the torch had to be bussed to safety the incident, which occurred on Wednesday night in Angra dos Reis, 
forced a temporary halt and prompted some runners to quit the relay, according to the Rio 2016 organizing committee. Protesters also stoned cars and police responded with tear gas and pepper spray. One child was injured and had to be hospitalized, according to local media. To avoid further problems, a stretch of the relay was missed out. A Rio 2016 spokesman, Philip Wilkinson, explained there is a backup of eight lanterns. The torch often goes out and is relit. The flame is never extinguished. The demonstration was staged by striking teachers who are angry at not being paid for two months as a result of the near bankruptcy of the Rio state government. Their action raises the risk that, as at the Beijing Olympics in 2008, the torch relay could become a focus of discontent towards the host government. Public frustration is high as a result of the worst recession in decades. This week, the government announced that average wages have fallen by more than 4% over the past year, while the number of unemployed in Brazil has grown by 37%. Support for the Olympics has plunged. Recent surveys by the country's two biggest polling companies, Data Folha and Ibope, Ibope, suggest half of the public is opposed to the Olympics and 60% believe it will bring more harm than good. 20% of tickets are still unsold. The outlet of the torch's two flames has gone out on numerous other occasions as a result of wind, rain, and protests. I love that protest is in the same category as wind and rain. Notably in Paris in 2008, when anti-Beijing rallies forced the cancellation of the last leg of the relay in the city. So again, hearing the power of protest um, and the fact that the teachers are the ones there uh, leading that and are very involved in that um, just reminds us of how important it is to support the folks out there who are the teachers. Uh, the next article I'm going to get to was written by Chelsea Manning, and we all know Chelsea Manning, or many folks should. Uh, she was a whistleblower. Um, uh, who was in the military and uh, called out war crimes that were being committed when civilians were murdered. The person who dropped the, the, the missiles, the bombs, or was shooting civilians, they were not charged with anything, but she, as a whistleblower, as the messenger, was charged with leaking secrets and has been in solitary confinement. She also is a woman who happens to be trans and have, that has been used against her in a variety of ways. And she's currently in solitary confinement and she was writing about that and also recently um uh we'll we'll get into that don't want to speak too much about it but or i do want to speak about it but i'll let the article speak for itself and let chelsea speak for herself so this was also in the guardian and the title of the article solitary confinement is no touch torture and it must be abolished chelsea e manning spent she says i spent not about nine months in an isolated cell behind a one-way mirror it was cruel degrading and inhumane uh trigger warning which i usually have before the show i sometimes forget to announce it but this is the news and this is what's happening in the world so again uh trigger warning talking about the inhumane state of the world and man's inhumanity to man and uh the systems that are in place and how we end up harming folks. And if the idea is for rehabilitation, it should be that instead of punishment. Shortly after arriving at a makeshift military jail at Camp Arijan, um, 
excuse me, that's Arifjan Kuwait, in May 2010, I was placed into the black hole of solitary confinement for the first time. Within two weeks, I was contemplating suicide. After a month on suicide watch, I was transferred back to the U.S. to a tiny six-by-eight-foot, roughly 2.2-by-2.25-meter cell in a place that will haunt me for the rest of my life. The U.S. Marine Corps brig in Quantico, Virginia. I was held there for roughly nine months as a prevention of injury prisoner, a designation the Marine Corps and the Navy used to place me in highly restrictive solitary conditions without a psychiatrist's approval. For 17 hours a day, I sat directly in front of at least two Marine Corps guards seated behind a one-way mirror. I was not allowed to lay down. I was not allowed to lean back my back against the cell wall. I was not allowed to exercise. Sometimes, to keep from going crazy, I would stand up, walk around, or dance, as dancing was not considered exercise by the Marine Corps. To pass the time, I counted the hundreds of holes between the steel bars in a grid pattern at the front of my empty cell. My eyes traced the gaps between the bricks on the wall. I looked at the rough patterns and stains on the concrete floor, including one that looked like a caricature gray alien with large black eyes and no mouth. That was popular in the 1990s. I could hear the drip, drop, drip of a leaky pipe somewhere down the hall. I listened to the faint buzz of of the fluorescent lights. For brief periods, every other day or so, I was escorted by a team of at least three guards to an empty basketball court-sized area. There, I was shackled and walked around in circles or figure eights for 20 minutes. I was not allowed to stand still, otherwise they would take me back to my cell. I was only allowed a couple of hours of visitation each month to see my friends, family, and voyeurs, vo- and lawyers through a thick glass partition in a tiny four-by-six-foot room. My hands and feet were shackled the entire time. Federal agents installed recording equipment specifically to monitor my conversations, except with my lawyers. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, Juan Mendez, condemned my treatment as cruel inhuman and degrading treatment, describing the excessive and prolonged isolation I was placed under for that period of time. However, he didn't stop there. In a preface to the 2014 Spanish edition of the source book on solitary confinement written by Mendez, he strongly recommends against any use of solitary confinement beyond 15 days. As Mendez explains, Prolonged solitary confinement rate raises special concerns because the risk of grave and irreparable harm to the detained person increases with the length of isolation and the uncertainty regarding its duration. In my public declarations on this theme, I have defined prolonged solitary confinement as any period in excess of 15 days. This definition reflects the fact that most of the scientific literature shows that, after 15 days, certain changes in brain functions occur and the harmful psychological effects of isolation can become irreversible. Unfortunately, conditions similar to the ones I experienced in 2010 and 2011 are hardly unusual for the estimated 80,000 to 100,000 inmates held in these conditions across the U.S. every day. In the time since my confinement at Quantico, public awareness of solitary confinement has improved by orders of magnitude. People all across the political spectrum, including some who have never been in solitary or known anyone who has, are now beginning to question whether this practice is a moral and ethical one. 
In June 2015, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy called the prison system overlooked and misunderstood, stating that he welcomes a case that would allow the court to review whether or not solitary confinement is cruel and unusual under the U.S. Constitution. The evidence is overwhelming that it should be deemed as such. Solitary confinement is the U.S. Solitary confinement in the U.S. is arbitrary, abused, and unnecessary in many situations. It is cruel, degrading, and inhumane, and is effectively a no-touch torture. We should end the practice quickly and completely. And again, you can find this article in The Guardian, uh, the title, Solitary Confinement is No-Touch Torture and It Must Be Abolished, written by Chelsea E. Manning.
and welcome back to the weekly review some feel-good music for you that was police state by special duties before that another song by reagan youth called i hate hate i can relate got a couple more stories for you the first one uh, uh also dealing with the prison industrial complex that's something we're very opposed to here at muni radio and for me personally robin reimer and most folks i know um we do have a positive story coming up which deals with the past a lot of the times the the positive stories here on the news on the weekly review happen to be people responding to living in a police state to living under unfair conditions and to fighting back so it's important to recognize when folks do speak up and fight back and are able to win so that's coming up after this story this comes out of Texas. I know a few folks who live in Texas, a few folks who have left Texas. This is from WFAA, more of a mainstream news outlet. Um, and when they do report something that's against, that's kind of status quo. Oh, we have a call. So we're going to take this call and see who's on the line here. Hello. Hello. Hi, um, my name is uh, Jane Bernard Powers, and uh, I'm with um, Women's Intercultural Network, and I understand that Charlie is being interviewed by your station today, and I actually don't know where it is on the dial. Oh. I thought, I looked you up and said, I know that this is, this is findable. So what are, the, um, what are the numbers? Well, thanks for calling in. We're actually uh, no longer on the dial. We are on the internet, though. So you can oh, listen. Click here to listen live. Yes, yeah, so you can listen live at mutinyradio.fm. Okay. I'm looking at that right there on the, um, on the website. So, okay. Well, that's uh, helpful to know. Sure. And it, um, so Marilyn and I will be doing exactly that. Wonderful. And it's good to find out about that, you know, Mutiny Radio, because I knew nothing about it. Yeah. And I've lived here for 40 years. Oh, wonderful. So. Well, thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to it. Sure. So, yeah, thanks so much. Sure thing. Take care. Bye. You too. Ah, lovely to get a call. So yeah, you can listen to us at mutinyradio.fm, and you can also listen to prior podcasts at our website, mutinyradio.fm. If you click under podcasts, there's a link to different shows. And you can also, we're on iTunes now, so you can find the weekly review on iTunes. You can ask me how to do that, because it's a little bit tricky to find. But we're on there, which is great. So, something that's not so great is this report that's coming out. The report, I guess, is good. When, you know, truth is revealed about uh, really incomprehensible uh, behavior, that's good. But what was discovered is just very heartbreaking. And this comes from WFA. And our uh, author of this article is Jonathan Silver, and this came from the Texas Tribune, WFAA. All right, deep breath. Whew. Report finds almost 7,000 in-custody deaths in Texas. That's right, 7,000 in-custody deaths in Texas. Almost 7,000 individuals in Texas have died while in police custody or behind bars over the last 10 years, according to an online report released Wednesday by a University of Texas at Austin Research Institute. Nearly 2,000 people who died had not been convicted of a crime, Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis data shows. We can't have an informed conversation about who's dying at the hands of police or who's dying in jails if we don't literally know who's dying and how they're dying, said Amanda Woog, a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute. I think this information can help us get to the bottom causes of mortality in the criminal justice system and with that lead us to solutions. I have one. How about we abolish jails? 
Of the 6,913 incidents, 4,870, 70% of individuals died of natural causes, 772, or 11%, committed suicide, 573, 8%, died in a quote-unquote justifiable homicide, 275, 4%, died from alcohol or drug intoxication, 255, 4%, died for other reasons, and 168, which is 2%, died from an accidental injury. 42%, 2,872 of the deceased were white. 30%, which is 2,060, were black. 28%, 1,915 were Hispanic. And 1%, uh, 66, were from other racial and ethnic backgrounds, according to WUG's database. 68% 68% were in prison, 16% died during an encounter with law enforcement and before being booked, and another 16% died in a county or city jail. Wu gathered the data from a set of information compiled by the state attorney general's office. All Texas law enforcement agencies, the Department of Criminal Justice, and local jails are required by state law to report in-custody deaths to the office. Prison deaths, those between 2005 and 2014, accounted for 4,684 of all deaths reported in the database. Of those, 90%, 4,223, were from natural causes. 699 were suicides, and the remaining causes of death included alcohol and drug intoxication, accidental injuries, and justifiable homicides. Prison death reports sent to the Attorney General offered little detail about what happened in each incident compared to other in-custody deaths, Woog said. The available information is a good start, she said, but if prison deaths were reviewed further, there may be a better explanation of the deaths from natural causes, with some of those cases like belonging in another category. If someone wasn't charged, then maybe the person filling out the form didn't think they could say that a homicide had occurred, Wu gave as an example, but the injuries might be consistent with someone having been attacked. Almost half of all prisoners who died, 2,338, were 55 and older. 30 percent, 1,412, were 45 to 54 years old. And 35 to 44-year-olds made up slightly more than 12% of all prisoners who died. In Texas, Texas's city and county jails, 1,111 people died between 2005 and 2015. More than half, 601, or 54%, died from natural causes. And 27%, 299, committed suicide. 9%, 9%, 99, died from alcohol or drug intoxication. 41% of jail inmates who died were in custody for seven days or fewer. While in law enforcement custody, including interactions during and after arrests and before booking, 1,118 individuals died between 2005 and 2015. Half of those deaths were classified as justifiable homicide. 16% were suicides and 15% were alcohol and drug intoxication. Unlike the prison population, the age of individuals who died skews no particular way. 33%, 372, were 25 to 34 years old. 23%, 258, were 35 to 44. 18%, 205, were 18 to 24. And 15%, 
165 were 45 to 54. Looking forward, Woog said she would like to get information from the people impacted by the data. Usually, when big data is collected, it's by a government source, but the information involves people, and their anecdotal accounts are important, too, she said. Sometimes memories might not serve people as well as those in as well in those sorts of circumstances, but I think it would be great if we were able to have other accounts of what happened, whether it's from a family member, a person in the jail who witnessed something, a person in the police interaction who witnessed it, or just a loved one who can tell us their side of the story, Luke said. I think what's lacking a lot when we're talking about these big data, I think, I think that's lacking a lot when we're talking about these big data kinds of questions. And disclosure, the University of Texas Austin has been a financial supporter of the Texas Tribune. The complete list of, of Tribune donors and sponsors can be viewed here, and they provide a link to that. So um, a lot of this is just kind of more fuel to the fire and the idea of the corruption in terms of law enforcement and more of an indicator of why uh, prisons need to go and be abolished. And of course, um, you know, at the end when they're talking about how we need more sides of the story, we need, and the fact is that these people were, have been murdered and killed, and we, know, we don't get their side of the story. So, of course, it's very important that we hear from their loved ones and people who are talking to them, as well as other folks who are in prison, um, because the, what's the saying? The idea is that the folks who do the killing are the ones who get to tell the stories, and they get to spin the story any way that they want to in order to not um, be held accountable. So it's really important to get as many perspectives as possible. And if anything, for folks uh, between this story and the, and the previous story, which are, of course, just, you know, just minute in the grand as I mean, prisons and jails here in the states are there's numerous and here in California, too, there's a number, so many jails and so many people who are incarcerated. Um, there's just more and more. Uh, evidence showing that it harms people and it's deadly and it does not help at all. It just causes the harm. So anything that's evidence that can further the discussion and for folks who are on the fence about it, um, we really need to get that information out there. Uh, so one thing that folks can do, there's an organization called Black and Pink, which deals exclusively with uh, folks in prison who are LGBTQ. There's like letter writing campaigns. There's another organization called Pages to Prisoners, which involves uh, sending books uh, to folks in prison, uh, different prisons and jails have various rules as to the kind of literature you can send. I was trying to send a book to someone recently, and he can only receive it through a bookseller online. You can't. I couldn't send him a book directly. Um, certain jails have restrictions as to the type of content of the books you can sell or send. Some say you can send. You can only send hardcover. Some say you can only send softcover. Um, there's a really just, if, if anything, there's a really just like a lack of information that folks are allowed to receive in prison and jail. And I wanted to, I was writing with someone recently um, who, uh, John Ye, who wanted me to, um, his message for folks out there is, is to quote unquote, fuck the system. And uh, that's exactly the, the line of thinking that we have here as well. The systems that are in place to harm people and oppressive systems that are in place that are causing harm and locking people up, which is not, uh, we just cannot stand for it at all. So I encourage folks, if you're interested in this, uh, one thing to do is have conversations with other people 
who may not be aware of this or may be on the other side to have discussions. Um, another thing to do is to think about how we can provide uh, alternatives. How do we live in a world that has alternatives to this? Um, another thing to do is direct contact with folks who are incarcerated, um, sending letters, sending books if they're able to receive them, um, doing what you can um, uh, in your in, in, in the place that you're living. So I really wanted just to, to get that out to folks. Uh, I'm going to play another a few tracks, and then we'll be back with the last story of the day, which is an uplifting story. And this is going to deal with the uh, Compton Cafeteria that a lot of folks know about, but some folks don't. So I really wanted to give uh, credence to that. So going to play some music for everyone, and then we'll be back with uh, the last story of the day. Again, you're listening to Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District. You can give us a call at 415-550-0511. Going to play a couple of short punk songs here starting off. Um, well, there's one by a band called, I just heard about, called Major Accident, and the song is called Terrorist Gang. Following that, uh, there's a song, uh, Info Riot. The Rage, and there's another song. I wanted to definitely provide some female punk uh, rockers here, and uh, there's a, a group called, uh, excuse me, that I'm just hearing about as well. They're currently around, and they are called Childbirth, and the song's called I Only Fucked You as a Joke. Uh, good feminist anthem there, because we oftentimes hear the other side. We hear dudes and their dumb songs and just sexist misogynist songs so it's good to get the other other side of things so we'll be hearing that right now and we'll be back with the last story of of the show in just a little bit so stay tuned
weekly review that was a band called childbirth with i only fucked you as a joke so we've got our last story of the show and this is i talked earlier about how i don't have any sponsors uh again the option is open if you'd like to sponsor the show um i'll be happy to promote you if the work you're doing i think is helping the world and i know there's a lot of folks doing a lot of good work so odds are that would be the case so this is uh from kqd and this is uh there's a documentary that's out and wanted to talk about that a little bit as well as the historical event that inspired it and that it's about and this is uh you can find this at kqd.org uh the night that trans women rioted for their rights at a tenderloin cafeteria and this was written by sarah hotchkiss and this came out on july 21st today the ground floor of the building at the corner of turk and taylor streets in san francisco's tenderloin district is a nondescript concrete rectangle it stands unassuming seemingly unimportant But, as a historical marker in the sidewalk will tell you, this was once the site of Compton's Cafeteria, a background to one of the most historic and little-known events in queer history. Although, a lot of folks know about it. Okay. Three years before New York's Stonewall riots, a drag queen at Compton's Cafeteria, sick of the continued harassment she and her community experienced at the hands of the San Francisco Police Department, threw her coffee in the face of the officer who grabbed her arm. Other patrons joined the fray. The confrontation erupted into riot of, th- of thrown dishware and overturned tables, following the police out onto the street as they called for backup. Sugar shakers went through the cafeteria windows and glass doors. Drag queens beat police with their heavy purses, and a corner newsstand went up in flames. 
As filmmaker Susan Stryker narrates in her 2005 documentary, Screaming Queens, so launched the first known instance of collective militant queer resistance to police harassment in United States history. Screening on KQED, Saturday, July 23rd, Screaming, uh, Screaming Queens, the riot in Compton's cafeteria has a particular resonance now. Uh, 50 years after the event that inspired its making as the need for queer safe spaces becomes a subject of focus once again. Overshadowed by Stonewall, the riot at Compton's cafeteria might have remained a little known, almost mythical event that took place one hot August night until Stryker dug deep into the GLBT Historical Society archives and tracked down the people who remembered the ten, what, who remembered the tenderloin as it was. It was beautiful because it was clean, said one of Stryker's interviewees of Compton's. It was like Oz, says another, something like the Wizard of Oz. The cafeteria served reasonably priced food 24 hours a day, acting as a gathering place for drag queens, trans women, sex workers, and down-and-out individuals into the wee hours of the night. Outside the cafeteria, the tenderloin of the 1960s was a place where transgender people could be themselves, but it was also the only place where they could be themselves. Police would give the people who were of indeterminate gender the message that they belonged pretty much in the tenderloin, which at the time was kind of a, a gay ghetto, a very slummy gay ghetto, Susan Cook says in the film. Their lives were further limited by the lack of legitimate employment opportunities. As for me and other girls, says former sex worker Felicia Elizondo, we never thought of looking for a job because maybe in the back of our heads we knew they wouldn't hire us anyway. We sold ourselves because we needed to make a living, she says, but we sold ourselves because we wanted to be loved. Stryker's film acutely depicts the, dance, the danger faced by those who worked the streets. Johns were often violent. A serial killer prowled the tenderloin targeting trans women. That stress, combined with a growing LGBTQ civil rights movement and the prejudice and police harassment, Compton's customers faced on a daily basis. The interviewees list off any number of offenses that could lead to an arrest for the then crime of quote-unquote female impersonation. Lipstick, mascara, hair too long, shirt buttons on the wrong side, obstructing the sidewalk, or just being. Came to a boiling point in August two, uh, 1966. There was, there was a lot of joy after it happened, says Amanda St. James. A lot of them went to jail, but there was a lot of, I don't really give a damn, this is what needs to happen. The exact date of the Compton's Cafeteria riot is lost to history. A reminder that a violent uprising of San Francisco's most marginalized citizens didn't even make the pages of a mainstream newspaper in August 1966. Stryker's film goes some way to correct that erasure of local LGBTQ history. Transgender people today need to change a need to change a world that still denies us many of our basic human rights, Stryker says at the film's close. Knowing what happened that night at Compton's brings the power of our history to bear on that struggle. Next on Truly California. 
1966, drag queens, fed up with abuse, rioted against the San Francisco police. All those plate glasses windows here were broken out. And inspired a wave of transgender activism. We had to fight for our rights as not gay people, but as human beings. A revolutionary act uncovered in Screaming Queens. And that was a that was a clip from Screaming Queens, and uh, you can find this at kqed.org for more information. Since it did come out on July 23rd, all right, and that's going to be our show for today. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Molly Neffel for calling in. Um, uh, thank you for supporting independent radio, independent media. Thank you for thinking for yourself. I hope some of what you heard today encouraged you, inspired you, and or touched a nerve that makes you want to act with love and kindness and hope for the future and the importance of collaboration and all these things that will help us come together. (sighs) With that, (laughs) I'm going to end on a very not, well, I'm going to end on a song by L7. Recently, a friend of mine, as many folks have been accosted by the TSA when they're just flying a lot, especially a lot of trans folks I know and gender nonconforming or just folks who are just simply being, I identify them as people. A lot of people have been accosted by the TSA who, again, another system that causes more harm than good. And, um, there, it was just like really, there's the gross security forces I think are gross. And that reminded me that my friend's uh, a story reminded me of uh, when L7, uh, the singer from L7 was angry. There was a crowd that was like not responding. They had some technical difficulties and the crowd was just being dicks. And so the singer from L7 pulled out her used tampon and threw it onto the crowd. And I feel like that's what many folks suggest <laughs> doing with uh, security forces, such as the TSA, who are accosting people's bodies, um, especially... Uh, you know, a lot of female folks, um, a lot of trans folks, um, they accost a lot of folks and people who are just being And in the last story. It was a reminder that folks, the idea of how important it is to fight back. So it, with that, I'm going to play a song by L7. Uh, the message I don't know, honestly, I don't know too much about. I just saw that it was L7 and thought wanted to, to play it. So for all the folks fighting back against oppressive systems, this song is for you. The 1969 Stonewall Riot in New York.
of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 20 Mission Hive vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 Mission Hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 Mission Hive. 20 Mission Hive for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, 
blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk, come together with music from around the world, with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio, when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment, we're in both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. and underground space for an event? Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event. Now trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Well, hey there, San Francisco. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find Counter Offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy, delicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They got them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Brenda's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son. Yeah. 